Welcome back to the RoyCast, the internet's first best succession podcast. My name is Brendan. I am joined as always by my co-host, Kate. Uh, I go by Techno Gatsby now. <laughs> <laughs> and Gabby. Hey guys. We are joined this week by friend of the podcast, Maya Kosov. Hello, Maya. Hi, thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. Very excited to have you. Did I get the last name right? I, I, I felt self-conscious right as it's, I started saying that. It's Kossoff, but... Kossoff, you know, an, an, son of a bitch. Enough, <laughs> <laughs> enough people say it the way that you are saying it that uh, I, I've stopped correcting them. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're working for the Times now. You're going to pivot to that, and you got a new name now. So Exactly. It's, it's all going to work out. <laughs> now, Maya, you are a uh, friend of the podcast and one of our uh, first big boosters, so thank you for that. But how did you uh, get into watching Succession? I think it was halfway through season one last year. Uh, one of my coworkers at Vanity Fair was a big fan of it and had been talking about it for like five or six weeks. And finally, I just kind of like capitulated and, and watched a few episodes and then quickly saw like the entirety of season one within like a couple weeks um, and have been eagerly awaiting season two since then. Yeah, that's probably how we would have preferred to experience it. But we all had to, you know, wait uh, and draw the whole thing out over the first 10 weeks and then wait an entire year. For the next one, we've all just been on tender hooks this entire year, um, and now it's here, and it feels slightly unreal that it's happening, and now it's the most popular show uh, online, apparently. Yeah, exactly. My joke was just going to be that everybody who works at a media company now has to watch Succession. It's just the That's new... That's kind like, of what it felt like after last week's episode, that it was like, all of a sudden, if you... like Every single person in media was talking about it and was like triggered by the Walter scene extremely <laughs> I kind of feel like season one wasn't appreciated by everybody in media and then kind of the 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 build up to season two saw some more people kind of getting into it and then after Sunday I feel like it was kind of like a snowball effect yeah without a doubt My I mean yeah go ahead Gay. I was just gonna say Maya thank you for that compliment you know we were on to it early we appreciate you appreciating that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's like now the show and I'm like, what up, motherfuckers, Johnny come lately? Like, what the fuck? Carpetbaggers? <laughs> I mean, it did, it did feel slightly like we were being pranked the number of like new podcasts and uh, react shows that were coming out. In after the yeah. <laughs> I took screenshots of them like complaining in a group DM about it and like sent them and they were like, holy fuck. <laughs> and you've got some like huge titles, you know, or big corporate, whatever. They're mostly all corporate and like, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. We're still like the first grassroots independent. Yeah. More and more people are saying it that we were there first. Yeah. <laughs> and we're the best. <laughs> goes without saying. Undeniably. We're clearly, we're clearly the most passionate. Like, this is a passion project, so yeah, we're that's just doing true. this for, for our employer, for, you know, for their, for power rankings on each episode. I, we we I care. Personally, I personally am doing this for my employer, uh, Rupert Murdoch, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Maya, I'm dying to know just, like, how you know, we've, we've talked a lot in this podcast about succession um, getting right a lot of things that other shows about 
these subjects and these types of people tend to um, either romanticize or turn to caricatures. So, but none of us work in digital media. And so for this, uh, for us, this episode, we weren't like as well-versed in whether or not this was true to life. Just very, very curious, given your experience um, in the field, what you thought watching this episode and whether things felt accurate or um you know if there was things that that didn't quite uh track so definitely would love to get your takes on that I mean I'm sure we will throughout this recording but yeah I mean I kind of overall felt like it was so accurate as to be painful like I think oftentimes when you see when you see uh parodies of digital media presented in 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 like mass media and tv and movies um they fuck it up a little bit. Like, I think the bold type is a good example of this. Um, but I, I think, I think that, that succession and Walter specifically is, is kind of like the ultimate example of um, like a really good parody of, of digital media that also presents a lot of just kind of um, painful realities of, of what it's like to be uh, in a precarious digital media company in 2019 um, from the the sudden abrupt layoffs and the anti-union kind of sentiment for management um, uh, to the content creation and kind of like the bespoke nature of, of these media companies where there's like a beehive on the roof of Walter's offices or whatever. Um, I, I felt like there were a lot of like little details that they got like very on the nose. Yeah, I also, uh, I think uh, it was Charles Bromesco um, who said that uh, Jesse Armstrong actually did check out the offices of uh, New York Magazine's Vulture for inspiration, I think, for the Vulture offices. Um, the giant, like, neon Vulture sign is uh, kind of kind of an eye-catcher. I don't know if that's particularly true to that setting or if that's a new detail. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard the same thing about uh, looking at your mag, New York Mag's offices, so uh, that's that's funny. Yeah, the show also has, I was looking at IMDb, um, like, a ton of consultants that, um, I, I suppose, sort of uh, advise on these sort of the nuts and bolts and, and nitty-gritty nitty of, like, these these industries and, and this world. So I think that they, they really make Pain, take painstaking efforts to get these things right, um, which we appreciate and have appreciated throughout the series. But um, for an episode like this, um, yeah, it was hard for us to. I mean, it it seemed really accurate just based on you know everything that's been um, you know coming coming forth in, over the last couple of years in terms of just mass all these mass shutdowns and whatnot. But we didn't quite know. Um, yeah, how on point it was. So. Well, there's this element. There's this element to it where a lot of the stuff we see in the background about Walter and about these media companies is played up in a way that's for kind of comic exaggeration. Like we tweeted out the, uh, um, you know, like the funny banners on the ATN headlines where it's right. like gender mm -hmm. fluid illegals entering the country twice, and there's like some there's a bunch of ridiculous like Walter headlines that you see splashed throughout this episode that seem like sort of Buzzfeed jokes. A lot of people compared it to vice, um, you know, as with most things in the show, it's not a direct representation of one thing. It's an amalgamation of details. Um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting approach because they start off in that way where this thing kind of seems like a joke in our experience of Walter in the first 
season was that they wrote an article called Shit Show at the Fuck Factory, <laughs> which was, you know, it's, yes, evocative of, like, Vice and Gawker, but also just kind of fit with this weird kind of winking tone it seemed to have about new media. But then when you get to this mm-hmm. scene towards the middle of this episode where you just see the uh, the workspace filled with all these people uh, who are, you know, like, just look, just look like ordinary millennials, you know, just ordinary people... And you're like, oh, shit, those, this is a real thing. And these people are all completely fucked. And it's very grim. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I have to imagine that a lot of people who, who who started watching this show because of this episode are people who, like, have experienced one of those layoffs. Or, you know, like, it, it may have hit a little bit close to home. But I thought they did a really good job with a lot of the minute details from, like, the ridiculous headlines. Like, the... Um, is every Taylor's is our Taylor Swift's <laughs> lyrics to her songs like secretly Marxist uh, <laughs> to to Jerry uh, uh, Rome being like, well, why don't they try pivoting to video? And Jerry on the phone being like, they did that already. Um, <laughs> yeah. to, uh, <laughs> there's like during the layoff scene in the background, this is like such a small detail, but I thought it was so funny. There's like uh, two birthday balloons that say 22 on them like it, they were celebrating someone oh, at Walter's 22nd oh my god and, <laughs> yes <laughs> that is a perfect it, detail it was a perfect detail oh my god that's awful yeah when I looked at that room like I just felt like this is the first time we're really seeing um like a group of people the Waystar underneath the Waystar umbrella albeit very low under in that umbrella in that totem um but it just seemed so like they it seemed so demographically representative of what a newsroom like that would look like of how it would operate the sort of energy in there um but yeah i mean i thought it was interesting and and different because you know we we do see the roys hurt people constantly i mean typically they're hurting each other but we you know we see them hurt um you know like Rome in the baseball scene, Ken, obviously, with the waiter. But this was sort of the first time that we saw, like, the systemic harm of Waystar sort of laid bare by seeing this newsroom of, you know, young, hardworking um, journalists. And and then, obviously, you know, the speech at the end, Ken's speech, um, the way that uh, he just you know, kind of heartlessly just ruin their lives with a few sentences. Um, and I thought, yeah, I, I, I just thought that that, um, that having those people in the room was really important to sort of hammer home the harm um, that Waystar does, that companies like Waystar um, inflict on regular people. Yeah, this was a, this was a rough episode i know we talked last week about the show feeling somewhat different a little bit sharper a little bit meaner maybe in its second season we know without kind of ken's um sort of personal journey being at the center and even though ken's back at the center again you know you're right this is um one of the few instances on the show where we really see the sort of people who are normally invisible to the roys and the effect that their actions have on them and the episode is just very i just i thought it's just very cold um and it's uh the major theme in this episode is just the idea of you know destruction is easier than creation right like there's that conversation that um logan and roman and kendall have and they're deciding what to do with Walter and ken's pitches to invest more in it 
to build it up into something better. Roman's pitch is to do the easy thing, which is to gut it and, you know, reap the benefits of the capital that you're spending there. Um, and that's what they do because that's the, that's the easier thing to do. Um, and that's the ethos at the heart of kind of these companies is that it's much easier to just kind of gut things and, you know, hoard the capital than it is to, to build something, which, you know, as much as Lawrence made a bad deal here and he's kind of a contradictory figure in a number of ways, you know, he's somebody who is, you know, represents trying to build something as opposed to what Waystar is doing. Right. Hive the profit centers, weed and food, only verticals (laughs) that generate revenue. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) That was pretty good, too. <laughs> we can start at the top of the episode, I know, but I, I kind of wanted to just, you know, this is, that's like, this is the, the theme of the episode and lots of yeah. destruction, lots of death drive. Um, but the media stuff really um, was really hard to watch and um, just wanted to get Maya's take on it and sort of preface with all of that. Maya, have you experienced like a mass layoff like that? Or no, not not personally. I've been very lucky. Um, I've I don't know. I've been in journalism for five years now, and I've like when I was at Condé Nast, there were layoffs. But I, you know, it, it's such a big company that uh, you know they they don't really do layoffs the same way that like a Mike.com does or or a Vice or a Buzzfeed, where it's kind of like we need to cut twenty percent of the staff, right? now they're kind of just like small cuts um across the company so you would see like a few layoffs at teen vogue and a few layoffs at uh like gq or vanity fair but it wouldn't be it wasn't the kind of dramatic um like slash and burn method that you see like kendall implementing at at balter in this episode just curious do you know do you have any friends in media that have experienced it like that i just wonder like yeah yeah no i mean most of my friends have gone through layoff like that yeah and is his speech, like, what is that kind of, like, I mean, obviously, I didn't, we didn't, like, task you with homework to ask someone, so, but, <laughs> but, like, I'm yeah. just curious how real the life, like, that actual scene and affect and, you know, w- were. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think that was, like, a slightly hyperbolized version of, okay. of what really happens, but, uh, like, the, the one, one, uh, week of severance per year at the company thing is, like, very real. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Uh, Horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. really, it's really not good. A lot of, like, the, you know, like, you have, like, 15 minutes and security's gonna be here to, like, escort you out of the building stuff, like, there's elements like again, like I like you guys have said this since last season. There's not everything in the show is based off of one media company or one one kind of reality. It's kind of like right. an amalgamation of a lot of different companies. Uh, and I think that you see like like everybody I know who has gone through a layoff at like a digital media upstart in the past five or six years um, has an experience that is reflective of something that that we saw in Kendall's speech. Yeah, so it wasn't like anything felt completely off base no it was it felt very it felt uncannily real (laughs) yeah and the the moment probably more spoke to like kind of kendall's state of mind and stuff and to a certain degree um just in terms of the delivery and affect and yeah his his reaction to lawrence after getting spit on and just Mm -hmm. like even barely just responding to it oh my god his face don't even get me started please (laughs) the range i mean give this man 
I don't even know what, but like it is enough. A hug. <laughs> well, oh he won't. God. He won't hug you back. That's for sure. Oh my god. But um. Give him some coke. Give him some coke or something. I don't know. Yeah, like not part coke, please. Give him some good drugs and like some pussy and some He's batteries to throw away. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, like I mean, seriously, I. You know, I know I I am ridiculous about Jeremy Strong and his performance and Kendall in general, but like you, just since you pointed it out, um, Gabby, like his response to getting spit on was just just unbelievable, and his face is like totally like sunken in. I know Brendan, you had mentioned like he has jowls now, <laughs> but it, the face work he does there is just. Honestly, his facial expression there is not that different from when his daughter hugs him at the amusement park at the beginning of the episode and he, like, doesn't respond. Like, very similar facial expression. It it represents, like, he's going through this transformation, in my my opinion, which speak on, I guess, more so later. But, you know, like, absolutely, he's got this affect or this disaffect, you know, that's present in the entire episode um mm-hmm. and in the last one but anyways um <laughs> jeremy yeah i i just like uh i like asking uh new york media people about the layoffs they've experienced like asking a vietnam that if they ever saw a guy get his face blown off <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, was, so how much action did you see it must be traumatizing seriously like that that was awful the the your benefits are done. Like, get out of the building. That's mm-hmm. it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I nursed, like, it, it gave me a little bit more insight into sort of um, things I've seen on Twitter. And, you know, because I, I just, I haven't experienced any of this personally, or I don't have friends who've experienced it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to hear that that was pretty much true to life, um, very gutting. I don't, I mean, I give a lot of props for people who can bounce back from something like that. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And and I just wondered, like, what the scene was at Gawker, you know. <laughs> that like, was like all... a drawn out thing. Though, yeah, maybe. yeah, because of the lawsuit. I mean, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, this was very sudden. I don't know if there's analogs of... Pre- of precedent, yeah. Yeah, of... I mean, Mike was Mike was pretty rough, right? Like Mike got shut sudden. down like overnight, didn't it? Yeah. yeah, that was that was in December when the sale happened, and that was you know that was I think like a pretty one to one comparison with with what you saw in this week's episode, um, where basically the entire editorial staff was just gutted, and, and it was very sudden and seemingly very unexpected, and um, there was a lot of technicalities. Like they, I think that I don't know the exact details but i think that they had formed a union and the union had been rec- had been recognized at mike but um the layoffs happened uh in a way that meant that, that like a lot of the benefits that people would have gotten post layoff like severance stuff like didn't necessarily take a factor you know there was there were some you know, there was there were articles written after the fact asking whether or not the the Mike acquisition was a union busting tactic and you know things like that. So um, I, I think that there's a lot of comparisons to be drawn from from that, uh, but also every other media layoff in existence. The BuzzFeed layoffs in in January, um, 
the Vice layoffs in January, all the other BuzzFeed and Vice layoffs that have ever happened. Um, you know, like I, I think that I think that there's elements of of kind of just the brutality and and the the suddenness um, of those layoffs that you that are reflected in in that scene really accurately yeah and even the contempt that that the roys have for an outfit like this like roman saying when they walk into the building oh take another week on that report matilda um (laughs) (laughs) who was named matilda but that's like his idea of like a you know hipster millennial name right yeah um What does he say? He's like cruelty porn and uh, and right, beehives right. or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely um, made yeah. me wonder too. Like at like some of these larger companies, I know like BuzzFeed fought for a long time for union rep or union uh, contract and like what they would hear from the big guy, you know, like Ben Smith or you know Jonah, per- whatever Peretti or you know like what the kind of spiel they were getting and what kind of pressure, but um, not, not to spend too much time on that, but it definitely did make me curious, like, you know, what, what was the propaganda coming from the people at the top, you know? Totally. And I think that the contempt kind of goes both ways too, right? Like you, like when Lawrence is meeting with, with Kendall, he's like, everybody in there fucking hates you. Right. And you know, that, that was, that was illuminating, I think. Yeah, that was a very like Gawker-ish thing. I thought the way that it, you know, the union, the unionizing talks, but also just like yeah, this depiction of just like a kind of openly hostile and you know contemptuous um, workforce, you know, versus their management. Um, I thought was very, very evocative of you know just the way that you know like the Gawker sites and other Gizmodo sites or Geo or whatever the fuck they're called, um, you know, write about their internal struggles against management. Um, was was very, uh, very much reminded me of that. But I also thought that whole unionizing bit was very strange because although it's the kind of thing you would want to bring up in the storyline I just didn't feel like that part of it really made sense like uh, he gives this speech Ken does where he tries to discourage them from unionizing where obviously his motivation is to give himself more time to do the work that needs to be done to gut them but at the same time it's like are they going to unionize what overnight because this is happening in a matter of a couple of days and given Ken's like track record with giving motivational speeches they don't usually work Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that that didn't really that didn't work that that part didn't really work for me. And also, like, yeah, I, I it just it, that that didn't feel necessarily realistic. But I, I thought it was they're working within the confines of like a weird timeline on the show anyway. So I thought it was good to even address it or bring it up in the first place. I appreciated it in the sense that you know there's elements of this episode that reminded me of like a sequel to you know um, one of our favorite episodes of the first season, Lifeboats, where Ken is taking the big job and is kind of giving this uh, big company meeting. He's giving this speech that's this kind of presentation of where he wants to take Waystar Royco and how he wants to see himself and everybody sees right through him and he falls flat on his face. You know, you see it um, in Lifeboats where Roman and Ken are just not on the same page at all in that meeting versus in this episode where uh, Roman is like openly hostile and contradictory to Ken when they're meeting with Lawrence. And once again, there's an opportunity for Ken to give a big speech uh, where he tries to convince everybody they're on the same side. But, you know, this time, you know, we, the audience, too, you know, see right through it because we know that he's just speaking for his dad. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm going to start keeping a running count of how many times Kendall hears everyone fucking hates you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're only at two, but it feels like we're in double digits. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah, there's also Stewie from the first season. Right. And yeah. Bro, they don't love you. It's just different different iterations of it. Well, that's true. Is that you you are a fucking nobody. Yeah, you know. I mean, and we can see that sort of that he's internalized that at this point, just the way that he's conducting himself. And also, I think the 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 dynamics between Roman and Kendall have shifted so much back to you know what you were speaking on, Brendan, just like season, like this season, this episode. Um, so it makes sense, kind of like the adversarial, uh, the more adversarial kind of competition, like happening between the two of them here versus uh in lifeboats yeah what it calls back to is it called back for me the uh conflict between them in prague where there's the running bit about their childhoods and the game they played or quote-unquote game where roman was locked in a dog kennel and uh connor's bit about how Logan's mm-hmm. theory was that, you know, you have a strong dog and a weak dog. You send the weak one away so everyone knows where the hierarchy is. And I was really reminded of that at the end of this episode where, uh, you know, Roman thinks that Ken has gone through a punishment. Um, but in fact, he's also gone through a kind of a test that he's passed by doing something that his father knew was, you know, by in getting rid of Walter, this thing that was crucial to his conception of himself as this smart, new media savvy guy. And instead, he's, you know, completely subsumed himself into his dad's wishes and his dad's identity. And his reward is that he gets to take a seat in his dad's office at the end of the office, not with a computer or anything, not doing anything, just sitting there like the Mm -hmm. dog at the foot of the bed. um, Because, you know, he's the strong dog, but he's still the dog. He's still the pet. um, And Roman's the one who gets sent away. Yeah, totally. I, Mm -hmm. I was definitely thinking about that. I mean, that's how, like, every... Um, interaction really between the co-COOs at this point really is, is that like, who's going to win the cookie as, as Logan, um, you know, all phrases it uh, at the ball at the, where are they? Yeah. But, but it, it it evokes exactly that dog, you know, versus dog situation. is Right. And we also see that Logan's approach to it is totally chaotic because, ostensibly you would think that he would have rewarded Roman for coming up with a good idea about, you know, gutting uh, Walter for parts and for, you know, finding out about um, the union from going out drinking. Like that's the kind of sort of ruthless behavior that you would think uh, Logan would reward. And then, and Roman sort of consumed with it throughout the episode, like when he's standing with Tab and he's talking about like, you know, maybe I did something right. And she's like, you did a thing. You did your job. Um, and then just to get totally rebuffed by Logan at the end like that um, really, really tapped into just something, you know, okay. that we've you know, discussed in terms of child dynamics and whatnot. I got to point out, he is not standing next to Tabs. He's oh, like right. laying <laughs> on a fucking table. <laughs> He's like six feet shorter than her. But, like, laying on this table, again, you know, back to Kieran occupying, like, the best of spaces. Um, I thought that was, was pretty funny. He was hilarious in this episode. Yeah, totally. hmm So, um, should we start from the top? I mean, we, we, we hit a lot of the, the, the heavy yeah, we stuff. Hit, 
Yeah, we hit a lot of the Ken stuff. I was thinking about uh, bridging this to Shiv because I, I do think the point about Logan's approach to Roman and Ken being chaotic is interesting because I don't think he's totally inconsistent. I think that he's not necessarily conscious of what he wants, um, but I think he's fairly consistent about he doesn't actually want his children to be um, independent and ruthless necessarily. He wants them to be subordinate to him. Absolutely. Um, and mm-hmm. he does not like to mm-hmm. be challenged, um, which comes up, I think, in the um, conversation he has at home with Shiv in this episode, where she's kind of pushing back against some of his ideas, and he gets very ruffled and uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. She yeah, sees it as like kind he, of a healthy he, conflict and dialogue that they're having, but he's quite true. uncomfortable. He, he doesn't know what he wants. Like, he thinks he wants one of his kids to be ruthless and smart and... Um, like him and in order to take over the company but then once he starts to feel like one of them might be approximating that you know he gets nervous and he freaks out and um you know then he just continues to sort of pit them against each other and um you know sort of firm up his own power because he he, yeah i mean he's really insecure about you know whether or not this is something he wants to give up and again, this goes back to just Logan's um, uh, psycho- psychology or pathology of like needing to be needed. Like he needs the kids to need him and want him and rely on him for orders, et cetera, um, which is goes beyond like just his uh, desire for power and stuff, but I think speaks more about like his pathology um, as a person, as a father. Yes. But anyways, yeah, we're all over the place here with this episode. Should we should we just go through the Shiv stuff? Because that does take us to the top of the episode. We just go through what happens to Shiv here. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. So we start off in uh, this absolutely awful dystopian-looking theme park. I don't know what the fuck the deal is with Waystar's uh, parks, but this one just looks miserable. Does anybody remember what the name of this park is? <laughs> no. Um, this, uh, I, the, the detail that really just like haunted me is that, uh, Ken's daughter is really excited to meet a character named Snow Joe, which is so just like low rent to me. And it's like, it's like the fire fest of theme parks. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's just very off brand and just kind of low key, gross and creepy to me. Um, like the hand job underneath the uh, what's the, ro- <laughs> the roller coaster called? The ghost, whatever. Yeah, and Tom, she was giving, Tom's she was like, Tom's like that. That used to be Joe. my job to like figure out how to stop doing that. And Shiv's like, well, I did my first hand job underneath the whatever it's called. Sorry, I'm forgetting the name. The ghost something. The ghost rider something. Go- yeah, yeah. <laughs> something ridiculous. <laughs> I couldn't help be reminded like of like prob- the PTSD that. I mean, being a little facetious here, but that Greg must have, like, seeing, uh, you know, uh, what do you call the, like, a character walking, yeah. you know, <laughs> seeing Snow Joe and just remembering, like, the protein spill. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I thought like, that was, like, undergirding the entire scene. Like, of course, he's not going to tell them because they would never... For like stop making fun of him, which they still can't with Satin Island, and I don't blame them, by the way. But <laughs> and all um, giving him terrible advice, just totally out of touch. Have you thought about a hotel? Oh my god! <laughs> He's like by by the evening, like what? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah I was definitely thinking about Greg there. He's looking at Snow Joe and thinking, "I am never going back." <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> but they, uh, but as usual at the theme park, uh, they have sequestered themselves like some kind of workroom where Logan is sitting, watching uh, Stewie on some sort of CNBC equivalent, some money talk show, uh, talking about the takeover. And Logan is grumbling with Jerry and consulting Ken, Roman, and for the first time, Shiv about what their comm strategy should be. Um, and this is where Shiv kind of distinguishes herself by taking a hardline stance um, that they should be aggressive as opposed to Jerry, who perhaps in the fashion of, you know, lead counsel is more cautious, wants to gather more information um, and opinion before proceeding. But Shiv says they should attack right out of the gate. I've also thought that, like, you know, she would think that because that's politics, baby. You know, like mm-hmm. you're always on the offense, always on the offense. So, like, um and business is different. I, I, I think, I mean, I've worked a little bit in politics, not in business, but, um, you know, so she was definitely operating from a campaign kind of like perspective there, uh, Shiv in terms of her advice. Yeah. And Logan clearly liked it. I mean, I think it was the first time that, that Jerry has been sort of like overruled by Logan, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because her strategy is also totally flattering to Logan that, right. you know, to frame it as, as she says, a basic bitch corporate raider versus, you know, a living <laughs> legend. <and> living <laughs> boy. Uh, it's like, well, yeah, Logan's going to go with that. Right. Yeah. Uh, I thought it uh, was. A, I, I was just going to say, like, uh, when he approves and says, you know, um, have Carolina, you know, spice it up and clear it through Shiv, her, the, the scene, the like shot of her leaving um that sequestered room like just so happy and giddy for that approval and like feeling on top of the world i don't know if you guys caught that moment but yeah Mm -hmm. they take that into the into the title credits it was yeah it was cool yeah so shiv is definitely like on on a power high yeah she's feeling herself for sure Mm -hmm. and then yeah go ahead sorry brendan I was going to say, also feeling themselves in this episode is Gil, uh, whose poll numbers uh, have him <laughs> apparently, uh, I guess, leading the pack. And, like, I guess they're in primary season now. They, yeah, I was They play very fast and loose about what actually is going on with, like, the election. Like, are we in an election season officially? I mean, it's America, so we're kind of always in election season. Um, but anyway, Gil's uh, polls are apparently very favorable to the point where he's thinking about cabinet positions. And he um, suggests to Shiv that she'd be up for chief of staff. Uh, but also in this very strange scene where he's giving this, you know, big pump em up speech to uh, a room full of staffers and uh, is gloating about uh, the potential of using the ATN corporate jet. And then the camera really lingers on this detail where he puts his hand uh, perhaps uncomfortably low on Shiv's back uh, to uh, nudge her away from Nate. Um, so I don't know. It's just uh, it's I don't know what you guys made of that, but it seemed to me that these sort of Bernie-esque touches of the first season were. Um, they kept Gill, you know, fairly close in mannerism to being a Bernie analog. Um, some of that has shifted in this season where he now seems kind of like his own thing and more of like a perhaps more generic Midwestern, but, you know, very much man of the people politician. Yeah, I thought that they were, I thought this episode did a good job of making him seem more or hypocritical and i think that that was what shiv really latched onto too right like the use of the atn private jet for example i think being like the primary thing that that seems a little bit like antithetical to what he would have done last season 
Yeah, but also struck me as fairly unrealistic, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. you know, campaigns do make, you know, shady uses of funds all the time, but somebody who's been, you know, out in front criticizing ATN as much as Gil has, even if he's made this backroom deal with the devil, he's not going to be flying the ATN jet, right? I mean, that just totally. seemed, you know, that seemed unrealistic yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I had two people DM me specifically about Gil. Like, what do you think of Gil this episode? <laughs> like, it, it, they felt the same way. Like, it wasn't... They're, like, giving these contradictory, which, like, we're all contradictory, so fine. But, like, it's just weird that they had him, um, you know, like, seeming like a sellout. And then, of course, later on when, you know, he he doesn't want to wash his hands from, you know, just shaking a regular person's hand. And and anyways, it's, I don't, I don't know. Um I yeah, thought it was a I little confused too. It was mm-hmm. a little confused, but I I do think it speaks to his like general ambivalence about having Shiv involved in the whole thing from the start. Like I think and I think it speaks to sort of the seduction of power that we've talked about. So, you know, on the one hand, he there's certain elements of being involved with ATN, having someone like Shiv working for him that are sort of, you know, alluring and exciting, taking a private jet. Um, but like we remember in Austerlitz when they first met that he said, you know, um, half of my base would be furious if they knew I was even meeting with you. Um, so he, he does sometimes call her out for things. And I think the final scene was a good way to sort of wrap up their, their breakup because, um, you know, it's Gil, we can't really pin him down as, is he fake? Is he evil? Is he virtuous? Is he not? Um, I think it's it's a little it's a little bit of everything. And um, I think that the speech to Shiv at the end in the car was real. I didn't see that as um, cynical at all. I I, um, I know it, it does seem a little bit confused, contrasted with what they're trying to sort of convey earlier in the episode. But I do think it tracks with his general wishy washiness about, um, you know, being involved with these people and um <clears throat> involving them in his in his work well the most interesting yeah, I mean, element I... sorry, Brenda, sorry go ahead this is the the most interesting element of that scene to me was uh not what gil was saying but nate who uh you know he butts in a little bit at the beginning but mostly he kind of goes quiet and he like kind of watches shiv in this way that i thought was very interesting because i think he um i pick up on nate apprehending in that scene is that um, it's less Gil making this decision than Shiv making it, right? Like, she is intentionally self-sabotaging here and blowing this uh, disagreement up into more than it needs to be um, because she wants out, basically, right? right? Like, she's mm-hmm. made her choice. You know, um, Tom has urged her to keep her options open, but she's apprehended that Tom is also, also doesn't want to be uh, subordinate to her, and she doesn't want to be subordinate to Gil. She wants to be the one in charge. Um, and so she's really self-sabotaging in that scene. So Nate kind of sits back and watches because I think he, understanding her better than Gil, of course, understands what's going on there. Do you need I'm a sorry. nap and a banana? I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Brendan. I'm going to have to disagree with any sentence that has both Nate and interesting in it. <laughs> this may be his last appearance, so I think I we can think throw so, Nate yeah. a bone. <laughs> <laughs> I liked that scene because I just thought it was so childish. Um, I mean, like these two people both wanting to have the last word, and like it, it was just so pathetic. To it me. was kind of pathetic, mm-hmm. yeah. 
you know, oh, well, if you'd have any antenna, oh, well, I'd already fired you. I mean, come the yeah. fuck on, grow up. Mm-hmm. Je- Jesus Christ. And it's, you know, but yeah, again, but I- Gil, Gil is being portrayed, like you said, Gabby, as a complicated figure, as are all the um, characters in the show, not all wholly good or bad. But, you know, again, showing that he can be corrupted, like I think probably the thesis would be... I, Anyone can be corrupted, um, you know, with with uh, their closeness to power and wealth. Yeah. And I mean, I guess this might be the last time that we see. I mean, I think it will definitely be the last time we see Nate um, and, and Gil, too. But then we also have the Connor angle. And if Connor is uh, applying for president of the United States, then who knows? He might come back and uh, we might see him again. I think I think Gil has got to stick around just because he's obviously such a major figure in this world. Yes, we we also have another running potential presidential politics storyline. Uh, but yeah, Nate could either come back or not. So you know, prematurely perhaps, but you know, pour one out for uh, Rose Emoji, Nate Safrelli, hero of the show. <laughs> Uh, pour one out for Nate um, and the actor who plays him, who we gave so much crap that I still haven't uh, looked up what his name actually is. I'm sorry, man. You didn't deserve that. He's also Australian. Also Australian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, A lot of people learned that Sarah Snook of, is Australian today on the HBO. I knew that was going to happen. I knew people were going to watch her uh Q and A and be like, she is Australian. Oh my god! But it seems like her accent work this season is really tightened up, and I do, I do want to ask her one day, hopefully, about that. Sarah, I love you. <laughs> More people need to watch her in Predestination. Great, great performance in that movie. Yeah. Um. So speaking of of Shiv and her relationships and um, her and Tom now have this really fancy apartment um and this also seems a little weird timeline wise to me like it's clearly not an obstacle for billionaires to be able to move quickly and hire people to do all the things that make moving so onerous and horrible for the rest of us but it's only really been like two weeks since the wedding if we think about the timeline because we know from the conversation between tom and shiv that it's been a week since the hamptons and then the Hamptons was, you know, kind of only a few days, a week at most after the wedding. So it feels a little fast. It feels a little bit like, like uh, why? <laughs> and I, I, I know that they kind of just maybe wanted to make the sets pritzier and, and um, a little bit more yeah. glamorous. And But it, it did seem like a little bit weird how quickly they were suddenly like in England getting married and then... Did did for people moving for them while they were there? I don't know. It doesn't really matter, but it's a beautiful place. Um, Love, uh, yeah. It's cool that you think they moved as opposed to just buying all new furniture at their new place. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. You know, you know what I mean. Like they had people doing all that shit for them. They just threw everything out at the old place. <laughs> God, horrible! Like like, yeah. like the, like the lobsters straight the trash. <laughs> We see we see Rome's place too, which we didn't in the first season. When we saw it blocked off, we saw it like a bathroom scene with Grace, and then we saw a bedroom scene with Grace. Um, but it did kind of seem like it was a different place, also. But I guess we're supposed to just think that that that's Rome's place. But his place is also beautiful. 
It's the and season flipped- two glow up. All right, it continues. Everybody's, <laughs> everybody's upgrading. Just go. With it. He's now living with tabs. Tabs, yeah. I love the two of them together. <laughs> yeah, she's great. I just, I was, I was so appreciative of all the height jokes. Just of, just the image of the two of them standing next to each other is just immediately <laughs> hilarious to me. I know. So, um, Tom, Tom, yeah, Tom is at ATN in this episode. <laughs> oh! Poor Tom, <laughs> Tom, oh, is, Tom, yeah. like, Tom is like Bill Shine now. That's who that's who we're all feeling bad for is Bill Shine. Although, this is that's such a great scene. I'm so excited to get into this. Go ahead, B. <laughs> so, Bring, so, bring it on! So he's head of global news now at ATN. They referenced this in the last episode where Shiv was able to leverage this great new job for him, which is kind of redundant, as they said in the last episode, because the head of ATN is Sid Peach, um, played by the legendary Jeannie Berlin, who, you know, this is a cliche, but I literally, like, screamed when she came on screen because I, I love Jeannie Berlin so much, and it uh, completes this, uh, or it continues this pattern of, uh, uh, actors who have worked with Kenneth Lonergan, Kieran Culkin, J. Smith Cameron, of course, and Jeannie Berlin uh, are all now on this show. Um, and uh, uh, all of whom appeared in uh, the great film Margaret, which we've discussed on this podcast before. Um, but anyway, uh, that uh, is obviously ripe for conflict because there's that great scene between him and Sid where she just lays out like, oh, you know, he sends me one of you guys every four years, never fails. Um, and I don't know what you guys all thought of that scene, of that conflict between um, Tom and Sid, or whether we're going to see more of that. Um, but one touch I thought was extremely funny in Sid's office was the uh, little plaque that was like a corporate culture award. Uh, just <laughs> considering what we know about ATN and by extension Fox News, I thought that was just incredibly funny. <laughs> I didn't notice. That was great. Yeah, there's there's so many little details in the show. It's so good. I thought um, that was um. I thought the scene with him and Sid was fairly redundant in that, um, it's kind of seemed like Tom was just kind of outlining a lot of what we already kind of assumed or knew um, mm-hmm. about ATN and that they're a Fox News analog and that you know while they don't you know march in lockstep with you know Logan's orders, but he doesn't have to give orders because he hires people that are ideologically aligned with him. Um, and Sid has another great line where she says, "Oh, you don't share our news values," right. which is a, <laughs> a wonderfully ambiguous phrase. Well, and then he responds with the classic, well, I'm from the Midwest, and my mom's friend Deb weighs like 300 pounds, and she's pissed about practically <laughs> everything, so I get it. <laughs> so even if for, just for that, no, I, 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 I didn't, I mean, maybe it was a little redundant, but I thought Jeannie Berlin was just so fucking perfect for somebody playing that role that it was just great to watch the two of them go back and forth. Um, but yeah, it was funny to see Tom kind of invoke his, like we've talked about, the Roy kids and their, you know, sort of um, lofty ideals and for their, you know, pursuits professionally. And Tom sort of has this idea about, you know, oh, well, the average age of our viewers is 68 and the lead into the news demo is halved and sort of invoking his own pivot to video strategy that we've talked about a lot that gets mentioned actually for the first time in this episode. Um, Yeah. And then her sort of kind of, 
response of just, oh, you know, I, I hope you get him so excited and uh, her telling him, him telling her to, you know, fuck off and mm-hmm. the, the final line, which, not on your dying day, baby, or whatever. <laughs> she was just so good. That so I good. Didn't, I didn't mind if it was redundant. And then Greg, poor Greg, getting <laughs> roped into ATN and his principal. Oh. The, the two the two Tom Greg interactions in the ATN building in this episode were so funny. The one before Tom has his meeting with Sid, where Greg is like, this place just doesn't align with my principles. And Tom is like, oh, what principles do you have, Greg? And uh, what does Tom say? He's like, or Greg, he's, Greg's like, uh, well, well you know, I'm against racism. racism. <laughs> it's like, bullshit, I'm against racism. We're all against Tom's racism. Against what else? Racism. And then and he then, says, then, like, <laughs> like, don't lie. Like, if you're the news, don't lie. <laughs> He's like, Tom, he's like, Greg, this isn't Dickens' world. This isn't a Dickens novel. We're all just trying to do our best. And I love Greg saying, ATN is a very toxic element in the culture. Yeah. Like, I know. It's like it's like he saw that on a John Oliver video. Totally. Yeah. Like, he just regurgitated that. I loved both of those scenes. And, I, I mean, it, it was great to see, like, Tom... Greg actually like try and stick up for himself and similarly Tom you know give as much as he got with Sid I love that scene I I don't care or know if it was necessarily redundant I just it was such a fun little um you know interaction between the two of them and I I could watch Jeannie Berlin all day yeah that first time it's her guy Sorry, I was gonna say, I like seeing Tom stick up for himself and kind of like berate people who aren't Greg. Like you see it with with Sid when they kind of <laughs> yeah. confront one another, and then you see it with uh, Shiv later at dinner when he it, tells her to shut up. Exactly, and like yeah. at this point, he's not just using a punching bag; like he's actually sticking up for himself. Mm-hmm. Like with Greg, he's more you know he's Greg isn't giving him a hard time, but he's just using people as in a punching bag. But he's not; he's no longer Tom is a new person. He's a Roy now, and he is no longer going to take the abuse he used to. And for me, for one, I was like, girlfriend, yes. <laughs> Even the way that he rationalized the open marriage to himself and contextualized oh. it mm-hmm. by framing him and Shiv as the king and queen who get to fuck the odd peasant, but everything else, you know, is working out and on track. Like, it seems like he has internally sort of made a calculus that, like, this is how he's going to get through this whole debacle with, you know, work, his professional life, that he's he's going to start, you know partaking in the big dick competition yeah but I, yeah but i thought it was really interesting the way he framed that with the with the open marriage as you know we're the king and queen who fuck the occasional peasant that's not how shiv sees it clearly yeah total. i i love it because it speaks again so much to tom's character and who he is and he loves um you know the power structure and being at top and that's like the only way he can accept this is is if like you know, he's he's fucking the odd peasant or serf or whatever, like many rungs below him. Right. Um, and Shiv wouldn't, you know, fuck someone of his caliber. Like whoever she fucks is just gonna be, you know, some right. you know, some basic. <laughs> and he's just like so bought Mate. into this world. <laughs> Corn fed basic. <laughs> agricultural walk the agricultural walk line fucking killed me (laughs) it was so funny and it was it was so mean that it was was the perfect opportunity for tom to say you know hey shit fuck off 
Um, and, 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 and Karen, uh, Roman was such a dick about the suits. <laughs> and the, uh, I like, mean, I have, I have to think Roman probably, I mean, he already has contempt for Tom, but it's probably heightened a little bit. We know with his, you know, sexual issues and knowing that Tabitha's, you know, uh, ha- there's, there's a weird like humiliation there was, there was a really, ritual really, element exactly, to it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There was a really good line when they got to uh, Tabitha and Rome's apartment for dinner, where Tom, I guess, has like a cold or something, and he and Tabitha are like left alone, and uh, Tabitha's like, "Well, have you tried swallowing?" Honey, <laughs> yeah. No, I love Tabitha. She's ruthless, and I, I I see why she gets along with with um with Rome so well. They have very, very similar banter. They have very similar banter. Like when they're at Connor's uh hotel housewarming, um, they're joking about his presidential aspirations and saying like maybe he should just get uh an actual like job uh before he does this. Like you know just any sort of job and uh rome says like maybe at cvs and tabs like yeah or even just like nickel hand jobs under the bridge um <laughs> i liked that and it it, it kind of gives you insight into to how rome and tab are, are are a good match but yeah that was so sad when <laughs> at the dinner party like uh, shiv and rome clearly just like immediately f- like flocked to each other and started talking about their family and walked away and just left Tom and Tab there by themselves. Um, so uncomfortable. Yeah, I gotta say, my my interpretation of that scene where Tom tells Shiv to fuck off um, was maybe not that he is all of a sudden standing up for himself, but that he's, I think he's finding his limit because he is getting in a bit deeper or he's in a different arrangement than he thought he was. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's uh, that's preceded by the the really amazing scene, which is I think my favorite bit of acting in the episode, aside from some of the stuff that Jeremy Strong is doing, um, of uh, when Shiv, you know, has to hold back her just explosive glee, uh, telling Tom that she's going to be the new CEO of Waystar, and like his soul is leaving his body through his dick. <laughs> he is just so <laughs> devastated, and he cannot, he can't even, he can't even feign excitement for her. Um, because it, it's it's not necessarily that you know he doesn't want her to succeed or anything like that. It's like it's in this king and queen equation. He thought he was going to be at some point head of Waystar and certainly not working for his wife. Uh, and that's I think where he really has trouble with what this power balance is turning into, and that's why he can't countenance the additional humiliation at that dinner. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I just love his acting in that scene. He's just he's just falling apart on the inside, just like <laughs> crumbling like a dying star. She's like, it's a modification of the plan. He's like, it's a pretty big modification. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a uh, poor Tom. I mean, he's a total asshole. I don't really care for him, but I did. You know, everyone shits on him, and. I gotta feel a little empathy for that guy. Yeah, and also, was... like... Sorry, Maya, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, it's it's like him being, like, professionally cucked by his wife. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, That's 100%. perfect. And again, at that dinner Multiple where cuckings. weird sexual humiliation going on sitting across the table from Tabitha. It's very weird. Yeah, and even just the idea that in the, the premiere that Shiv told Logan that... Um, that she would cut news 
um, and then makes Tom, you know, a, the 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 ATN chair. Um, just really, yeah, feeling rough for Tom about all of this. So yeah, maybe we should talk about the, that conversation in this episode between um, Tom and Shiv, and I mean not Tom and Shiv, sorry, Logan and Shiv um, at Logan's house. And him sort of uh, going over the timeline, which she didn't seem to expect. Oh, my God. Well, she shouldn't have. Like, based on the first episode, he made it seem like six months. Like, yeah. I don't remember, like, exactly if he specifically says six months or, like, it, and kind of uh, intones it, it or. But, like, yeah, that fucking timeline. Jesus Christ. I was taken aback, you know, and. um. Yeah, definitely uh, not what she thought. It's an appropriate amount of months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I, you know, um, he says something, Logan says something, or Shiv might have said, well, what was the woman line, do you guys recall? Like, oh, <laughs> she's, yeah. She says, like, oh, I'm a woman. He says, you're a wo- young woman with young no woman. experience. And he goes, yeah. oh, I'm a woman. That's a minus. He goes, of course, that's a fucking minus. That was like I didn't a, make a, a weird right. moment for Shiv. <laughs> the thing for me was like, dude, you do make this world. Like, look right. at your yeah. fucking news. <laughs> like, you're perpetuating this. And even by telling her that she needs to do that because she's a woman is perpetuating it. So, like, just the total cluelessness of, I mean, or maybe he's not even clueless. He's just, you know, I don't know, making excuses because he doesn't want to leave. It, yeah, he doesn't want to leave the role. Yeah, and he's fine with it. Exactly. But like, he I care it, that I, it's harder for women. Like, even when she's walking into that scene, he's like, "Oh, do you know three dependent women? Ideally, one in a wheelchair or somebody who's been <laughs> injured by a, a landmine in Cambodia because he needs to fill board quotas." Like. You know, to him, it's just a, it's just a chore. You know, he doesn't give a fuck that it's harder for Chip because because she's a woman. And he does uh, make this world like that's the fucking key to yeah. it. You know, like and I don't know. Logan's certainly not self aware, but um, yeah, that uh, had me fired up. Speaking of uh, strong, independent women, uh, Marsha shows up in this scene and uh she's in a she's in a very different place this season i have been kind of dissatisfied with how she's been treated the last couple episodes just because um i thought she was so mysterious and interesting in the first season and now it seems like so far what they're doing is just very much showing how she's being sidelined by logan's interest in shiv and kind of keeping her on the outside of that process. And it's not really clear to me why he's keeping her on the outside, because she seemed to be so close um, to him before, except maybe that Logan's feeling more threatened now and uh, has decided that he can only trust his blood. I'm not sure how you all read that. Well, maybe he's just, like, making it all up. Like, I don't know how... I I heard some of you guys assess... um, like the seriousness of his offer to Shiv, but you know, I mean, I don't know. I'm just, I haven't really given a lot of thoughts, but that's just um, something that's just thought of, you know, maybe he doesn't want to bring her in because. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's, 
I don't think it's a conscious thing that he's deceiving her necessarily. I think yeah. the show kind of anticipates that in this episode and kind of shows you how he means it. He's like, yeah, I do want to bring you in, but, you know, I'm going to kick it way down the road and just kind of keep you on a leash in the interim um, is kind of how he thinks of it. You know, like it's it's this thing that he can kind of put off indefinitely um, and uh, is, is really just a means to, you know, bring his family closer to him in the meanwhile, you know, which obviously is not what Shiv has in mind. Right, and Marshall was clearly, like, startled and or, like, annoyed by Shiv being there. And, you know, we know there's a lot of conflict um, yeah, between I don't the ne- two of them. I don't necessarily agree that, that she was sidelined in the first episode. I thought Marsha was pretty funny and kind of, you know, she wasn't, she didn't play a major role, but I didn't see her as sidelined. But in this episode, it felt more like... Um, the first time we see Logan sort of um, talk down to Marsha in the way that he kind of made her leave the room and commanded that she turn off the fucking uh, Alexa. Amazon Alexa or whatever. <laughs> there is no way Logan would own a fucking Alexa. Come on. But Marsha would. But they, somebody, he somebody said because... one. Yeah, that's true. And... He knows, you know, they can hear everything. I don't know. I I, I didn't uh, find that realistic, but it was funny. How, yeah. how tech how tech savvy do you think Logan actually is? Right, that's why he's like. But he knows. Like, he knows his competition. He knows you need to unplug it because otherwise, it's listening the whole time. Uh, but yeah, that's I, I I really like that scene. The scenes with Shiv and Logan so hard. Like obviously the uh, scene with Shiv and Logan, the premiere was I think the the centerpiece and the best one of the best scenes they've done. And this one I think is just a really interesting continuation of that dynamic where you know Shiv seems to think that she is you know kind of on equal footing that her dad finally sees her as an equal, and uh, I think it's uh, the truth is uh, much more kind of ambivalent than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I got I kind of got that read in the in the the last shot of. Um... Shiv and and her dad talking at the end of the episode and her saying that she's out with Gil and she's ready and he seemed um you know not necessarily hesitant about it but you know she was really psyched and he just kind of was like okay um and um you know didn't really have any sort of reaction to it and that sort of struck me because everybody's been talking about oh Logan's gonna fuck Shiv over um and I I you know, I hadn't really gotten that sense yet, although obviously it's completely in the realm of possibility, but I hadn't like seen it um, in a way that made me feel it. But that moment did definitely because it almost seemed like, um, you know, like we were talking about before, Logan wants his kids in some ways to be competent, but in other ways, um, if they're too eager um, and if they're too ingratiating to him, that also grates on him. So that's sort of what I what I saw there, almost like Logan wishing that he was she, she was still like hardballing him with the Gill stuff, but now she's all freed up, and you know, for for me, it seemed like Logan sort of again that that part of him of his pathology activated of what he really um, wants from his kids, and and the fact that he just doesn't quite know. Yeah, I forgot to make that connection in the conversation uh, when we were talking about the last scene with. Shiv and Gil, but you know, like her father, Shiv kind of like punishes Gil for like wanting her help, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, she kind mm-hmm. of uh, looks down on him for you know wanting to be connected to her. So, 
Yeah, Shiv is bound to get hurt pretty badly. And, you know, we've talked about her being really disaffected. And, you know, we we see her in this season, like, actually getting excited and feeling things. Um, even though she, as she relays it to Tom, you know, it's a play. And it's never going to happen. And, you know, it's it's not real. And um, But I think she's uh, bound to come fall from that high horse uh somewhere down the line Mm -hmm. and it's not going to be pretty but i'm looking forward to seeing how how they let it play out and um hopefully she cannot actually have feelings uh shall we touch briefly on connor and willa's return to new york yes and their weird hotel (laughs) apartment Their weird hotel party uh, where they're serving sliders and there's no decorations. It's very weird. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a very strange vibe in that scene. Uh, Maya, what did you think of that? I didn't know what to make of it. I mean, it was very, it was like textbook Connor. It was, it was bizarre. And Willa was like hostessing and kind of like giving this like speech about how they're paying for everything. So everybody enjoy yourselves. And uh, it was, it was, it was very strange. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the yeah <laughs> Willa is very uncomfortable and very ill at ease in that hostess role. It seems to me like she's uh, much uh, more comfortable. It seems in this kind of cool, aloof, you know, snippy, dismissive mode um, that she gets to play with uh, with Connor sometimes because mm-hmm. um, he likes that. Uh, but yeah, she has to give this speech as a hostess, and she like does not know how to play it, which is interesting because she's a theater person, but not an actor apparently. And not cut out to to be a first lady, if that's any indication. Well, you know, that bar's kind of been lowered. (laughs) (laughs) I I also liked how uh, Martha, when she was in that scene with with Shiv and Logan, and that they're talking about Connor, and she mentions that Connor sent out the photos in his email bulletin, and just that detail of Connor (laughs) having an email bulletin. (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) Creedthoughts.gov But yeah, it's weird that he's left the the land and the water, and I wonder who's taking care of it. I mean, it must have been hard to pull him away from that, but I guess they had to for, you know, the sake of of what's going to go down this season. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's weird not thinking of Connor like Immortan Joe out in the <laughs> desert. <laughs> Can we talk about uh, Kendall's new apartments that he bought too? Yes. Oh yeah, Greg. <laughs> Greg and the law. <laughs> I was I was thinking this is this is just like the season four of Breaking Bad where Jesse has the like rave den that just turns into an absolute hellhole. <laughs> What's I was, to be a lot more stylish. Was I also, Hector Gatsby. <laughs> what's that? What's it? What's it? Kendall call himself Techno Gatsby. Yeah, that, was that his? Uh, yeah, that was that was great. And also Greg's like disbelief that Kendall would let him stay in the apartment. <laughs> him being like, oh yeah, 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 I'll live here. Sure, right. He, he and Kendall's says, like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And was like, here are your keys. And he's like, uh-huh, the keys, right. He cool. says, I can take a I could take a lot in terms of psychological pain. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, so terrible. So I, terrible. Well, I thought it fully if there is like a, a drug den, it's Greg's apartment, because Greg needs to get his rest, that tall boy. <laughs> There's the one when when 
they're having the party at the apartment, uh, Greg finds Kendall and is like, uh, I think some of your friends are humping on my bed. <laughs> your friends are maybe humping in my room. <laughs> I thought um, uh, Greg's disbelief in terms of the apartment kind of matched an ongoing motif motif throughout this season so far. Like, is this real? Uh, like, happening in like many different conversations and situations, like, you know, notably Shiv with um, Logan and uh, what's uh, Lawrence with uh, Kendall when Kendall had first mentioned, you know, like my dad wants to close you down. And, yeah. and he's mm-hmm. like, is this real? Sure, and there, yeah. there's, there's this really weird balance. And I, pro- I probably kind of overthought it and was thinking, like we all live in post-Trump world and so don't know what to take things seriously. And that's probably way too. um, Well, I think, I think the way this show always plays with it is just that sincerity is a sign of weakness. Nobody ever says what they mean. You mentioned that in the last episode and and you're spot on, but I think in this season it's even way, it's, it's like way more heightened um, for me. I just love in those Greg scenes because the scene is immediately preceded by the one where he is tr- uh, he's he's lying on the bed in the like really tiny loft um, <laughs> that he doesn't fit into, and of course Greg's uh, appearances are like usually um, uh, uh, dressed with this you know material about how he doesn't quite fit where he is or he's otherwise invisible, and so uh, when he finally realizes that Ken's serious about gifting him the apartment, uh, it immediately cuts to this low angle where you see him just look up at the high ceilings and he's so delighted that he's found a place that he fits I need storage for myself (laughs) (laughs) that bit of dancing and whooping was inspired I love that Uh, as was Techno Gatsby I mean that's fucking genius line yeah so do we want to circle back to sort of Ken's transformation or his coming to heal his new sort of role as um deliverer of bad news and a bitch to his dad (laughs) but also in a way he's just kind of given up um and i think that speaks to the the response Mm -hmm. um in the walter scene when you know lawrence is you know screaming at him and he's getting spit on and he sort of just um in season one Ken mode, we might have had a moment there where he, um, you know, gives some sort of consultant jargon speech to Lawrence about why Walter isn't going to work out. But um, this new Ken kind of just resigns himself to saying, because my dad told me to do it, um, which shows that he finally sort of knows and accepts and internalizes that what dad says for him is what goes and that resistance is futile. And maybe there is some kind of newfound power in this um subjugated state ironically enough that he can kind of just there's no the pressure is gone you know it's like i'm just you know i'm just a mercenary who's here to just kill people and i don't give a fuck and i'll steal and throw out the batteries and um destroy a bunch of people's lives and you know i don't need to justify it with any sort of you know uh virtuous speech or anything like that um yeah, I, leaning into it. 
I, I I totally was reminded of Austerlitz when he is like totally vulnerable. Not that he, Ken's vulnerable per se, but that he's just acting instinctually and like not doesn't have. He has a weight on him clearly, um, but you know he's just he. Uh, I can't express myself or articulate <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Now, the range is amazing. I mean, even when he's trying to convince Logan earlier in the episode that Walter still, you know, could be the lodestar, then he gets shut down and he goes to the bathroom. And my husband was like, oh, no, he's oh, going to dest- yeah. destroy another bathroom. And I was like, no, he's going to go do a line in that bathroom. Like, he doesn't have it in him to destroy a bathroom anymore. He doesn't give a fuck. And then the throwing of the napkin in the yes! cell phone. I got the range there. It was incredible. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, he's he's unburdened, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. And he doesn't have to pretend to be this business exactly. guy and put on this, like, whatever. And, and it gives him this freedom, which we see, like, with the techno Gatsby. And then, of course, mm-hmm. the battery scene, which I'll reserve. But, uh you know, yeah, he's he's definitely different. And Brendan, I thought, um, although I don't think it's correct, it, like total analog, but your point about um, him being like Jesse uh, with with Walter White and Breaking Bad was like totally, totally right on. Because if you recall, like after Jesse killed Gil, and he just in the next season was then you mean he, Gus? Gu- no, Gil. It's, Gil. Oh, Gus. No, no. Gail, thank you. Gail, Gail, that's right, right, right. Yeah, that was the end of season three. And then season four, he is just like, does not give a fuck. Like, he's murdered someone and it, it, it like totally changes him. And I think there's obviously different dynamics going on here in, in this show. But I thought I hadn't considered that. And I thought it was a really, really apt comparison. Um, well, yeah, there's, I, I think what you guys are speaking to about, you know, the unburdening that Ken feels, the idea that he's liberated because he's just a proxy for his dad's will, and he no longer has the burden or has given up this burden of, you know, trying to find his own identity or be true to himself, such as, you know, a self exists. Yeah, is liberating for him in a way. And I think also in that exchange with, you know, Lawrence at the end where he says, because my dad told me to, um, mm-hmm. you know, it also, you know, calls back to lifeboats where Ken had all these great theories about, you know, um, you know, the way the media sector should work and what you need to do to succeed. And what's laid bare there is that all that stuff is, you know, ultimately just a vessel for the will of whoever has the capital. Um, and that's all that's going on in that scene is that will being exerted. Um, yeah, also calls back the pilot and the, does anybody want to call their fucking dad? I don't want to call my dad. Um, and that, ironically enough, was a, you know, had to do with Walter. So um, but, just to, but, to go from that, yeah. What? But one last point about Lifeboats, you know, like I think that, you know, in the first season where we saw Ken try on a number of different hats and we saw him fail at a lot of things and something that was really painful for him was just that, you know, his being coming up against his own shortcomings and his own kind of incompetency in a lot of ways. And the fact that he was just not that good at the stuff that he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I think that is liberating for him in this episode and something that he gets at least some kind of, um, you know, vindication out of is that he's found something he's good at and it's being hated. Um, he's good <laughs> at just being the bad guy. He's good at ta- he's good at being the scapegoat and, and taking mm-hmm. all that hate uh, mm-hmm. and antagonism onto himself. 
Yeah, in my notes I had said, you know, about the everyone fucking hates you, like, that doesn't work on him anymore. You know, like it, it had such a profound effect in season one. But like like you said, like that's his role and he owns it and it, he he accepts it. And yeah. Yeah. I yeah, don't know if it exactly he, gives him strength, no but yeah, gives him something. Right. Gives him mm-hmm. something, some way to cope. But yeah, I mean, he, he well, gives him a role. Right. And like Stewie saying in the interview in the first scene, oh, I like, yeah. Kendall Roy is no longer a factor. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. he's he's removed himself from contention. Like he's, you know, Logan has this to hold over his head forever. You know, he he's he has no choice. Like there's no way to build himself back up from that. So he has no choice but to lean into it. And ironically, you know, makes him all the more appealing to dad. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course do we want to talk quickly about our interpretations of the final beat where Ken steals a pack of batteries and then throws them away I mean for me it's just the what what we were just talking about I mean, it's just the death drive in action it's like mm-hmm. I can get away with this and I don't need to worry about being righteous or virtuous anymore or at least posturing that way um, I'm a piece of shit and I'm gonna sometimes being a piece of shit feels good and I'm just gonna you know, I'm just going to ride that wave. It hit me really hard. I mean, uh, I, I really love the scene and it, a lot of it is um, just the emotional resonance. And I, you know, don't have a lot of uh, a ton of thoughts about it, but it felt right. But exactly. He's just doing shit because he can. Um mm-hmm. You know, like, why do you take the batteries? Because you can. Why do you, th- you throw them away? Just because you can. Um, yeah, there's no yeah. more moral pretense. Yeah. Like, that, that's it. Yeah, for me, it just fits into that idea that, you know, what the, all these characters are doing in this episode, what, what Tom's doing at ATN is, you know, trying to find... Um, we missed one of my favorite lines of the episode where he says he wants to fat shame ATN, you know, find the fat <laughs> and point it out. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, and Ken is trying to, Ken is gutting a company. Um, Tom wants skulls. He wants people to fire um, at ATN. And so it's just, it's just this running theme of destruction as these people's kind of operating mode. Um, if you want to get extra cute about it, you know, the batteries symbolizing renewal, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera. And it's the thing that he throws away. Um, but I don't know. I thought it was, I thought it was perhaps a, an unnecessary beat at the end because I, I really like the image of Ken just sitting, you know, like I said, at the foot of his master's bed. Um, but um, it's, uh, again, just a very cold image to end the episode on. I'll fight you. <laughs> I know you will. I mean, I, ju- I just thought it was so perfect it just felt right um i and i i i did go on reddit uh the succession reddit this week and uh there's tons of uh what do they call them streams i don't know threads there's tons of threads about it it's clearly i didn't want to read them to influence whatever but like it's clearly got people thinking and talking and um but i think you know for me it was also like he's been transforming through episodes one and two. And this, the significance of that scene was like, he's changed. Like he has been going through the process and now he's changed. He's different. I felt it was kind of in some ways like, uh, you know, textual, like something you'd get in a book. But, um, 
But yeah, he's a different person now. R.I.P. Maya, what what do you think? I don't know. I I, I didn't read a lot into it. I, I think it just felt to me like he something that he did for the sake of doing it, um, because he can and he can get away with it. Right. And the old Ken, you know, wouldn't because of the moral pretense, you know, whatever. Sure. Right. Yeah. But but now, you know, he's. It's clear that that season two Ken is is kind of a different Ken. Absolutely. He's Techno Gatsby. Can we, like, just continue to call him that throughout the season, please? No, please. I, no. <laughs> oh, Brendan. Oh, come on. Someone changed their Twitter, Twitter name, of course, to Techno Gatsby. I have no idea who it was, but I was like, fuck. <laughs> Missed opportunity, Kate. <laughs> Big time life choice, changing your display name. And I missed it. Fuck. <laughs> Closing thoughts? Anyone have anything to say about the scene, the more to say about the principal scene, but, you know, Greg saying he has principles? I mean, maybe we already expounded enough, but I thought that was kind of a, I, I a type not... of scene we haven't seen before. Where yeah, someone's... I thought it was, it was interesting that Greg, like, nobody on the show has ever, like, pretended to have principles before like this is the first time anybody met families like ever dared to say something like that or even thought about it um but I I also thought the scene after that with Greg and Tom where um Tom kind of instructs him to to go body uh, what do you say he's I want to fat shame the company and point out all the all the excess that it has um and, and Greg consequently going and finding him skulls was was also uh just kind of hearkening back to this dynamic that they have. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Greg doesn't really hold up very well in that fight where he's, like, defending his principles. I mean, it's kind of an insane argument to have. Um, but, I mean, obviously, he, like, doesn't do anything, right? He just goes along with it. Um, so it doesn't reflect super well uh, on Greg, but it's a, it's a very funny scene. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, I don't think they've ever any there's ever been, like, spoken talk about, like, ethics or morals ever in the show before. Yeah, I just hope everybody's ready for their favorite cute character, Cousin Greg, to become more and more of an explicit scumbag over the course of the series, because it's happening. <laughs> oh, absolutely. He's <laughs> bound to run, you know, the show. That's been my ongoing theory, is if you've listened, you know, Greg knows all, sees all, and one day will come to reap the benefit, or not. <laughs> I mean, that apartment, which I don't even want to... F- like fathom what the rent for an apartment like that would be it's going to be a serious power trip for greg so Mm -hmm. um maya i wanted to know if you had any last thoughts on like the the media dynamics here um the character of lawrence sort of how (laughs) all of that went down lawrence telling um his staff to like drown ken in paperwork when he was trying to look through things oh i loved that (laughs) i love them like juicing the numbers that was so funny um yeah, I, I hope that this isn't the last that we see of Lawrence. Like, I hope he sticks around in, in another episode at some point. I I would advise uh, Waystar Royco not to continue buying devalued media assets, probably. But yeah, I don't I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that conversation where he's talking about how like Facebook changed their algorithm, they got face fucked. <laughs> it's a little on the nose. <laughs> Was it on the nose? Yeah. Okay, I thought yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> Ken is gonna uh, buy uh, Tumblr and get rid of all the porn and <laughs> sell it for a billion dollar loss. 
a little trivia about that apartment Greg gets. It's apparently the apartment from Big. Oh, I was really hoping you were going to say it's in Jared Kushner's building. Oh, my God. <laughs> it could be. And then I also saw the rent or or rather the cost. I'm not sure. And uh, this probably was on Reddit. And I forget the price, but it was obscene, of course. But But, yeah, it's from Big, which I don't know if I've ever really seen. <laughs> what a neat little trivia point. Um, I also like when Ken is making the first speech to the Walter staff and he brings up the idea of like being light on their feet and not unionizing and everyone sort of collectively like moans and he's like, We'll get you a super punchy independent arbitration panel. Pay raises. <laughs> <laughs> As long as my arbitration panel is boutique and artisanal, that's all I want. Yeah, just phenomenal writing. Uh, okay. Um, I guess yeah, that's it. This is a pretty pretty healthy sized recording, I think. Um, so it's probably a good place to wrap it. Uh, Maya, what a treat! Thank you so much for joining us. I am so glad we were able to have you on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're so grateful. Thank you. Maya, we love you. Oh, <laughs> we love would never <laughs> We true would never fly guy. You. Yes. <laughs> You're part of the fly guy, you know, c- team and you know, now you got to f- follow the fly guy code which <laughs> I'll I'll be following up with an email. <laughs> Too much team speak. You sound like Kendall. <laughs> yeah, and I'll need you Not to a good get- sign. I'll need you to get me some ideas um, on startups or you know <laughs> a- any ideas you got. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, all right, folks. We'll be back next week with episode three and another guest. Thank you so much for listening to the Roycast. Uh, bye-bye. Oh, Maya. Yeah. Do you want to tell us where we can find you? Oh, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at at M-E-Papa. All right, folks. All right. Thanks, everyone. Brain like Berkeley. Met her at Coachella. I went to see Chica. She went to see Z-Trip. Perfect. I took a seat on the ice cold lawn. She handed me an ice blue bong. Whatever. She said she want to be a dentist really bad. She's in school paying for tuition, doing porn in the valley. At least you're working, but girl, I can't feel my face. What are we smoking anyway? She said, don't let the high go to waste. But can you taste a little taste? Novocaine, baby, baby. Novocaine, baby. I want you. Fuck me good, fuck me long, fuck me numb.